If you have your Bibles, please open up to Luke chapter 13. We'll be in Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. Hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. I had a blast. It, you know, I, I've been eating Thanksgiving stuff all week long, and you can't beat that. I, um, uh, but Sunday night was just a, a blessing to, to kind of come and have the bilingual worship with both sides. And, and uh, it, it just is a, is a great blessing. I want to remind you that as Christmas approaches, don't lose sight of the, the important things in life. You know, watching the news on Black Friday, it's just kind of craziness. And it shows the distortion of really, you know, what we're supposed to keep our eyes on. But in the back, please, the, the missionary cards, you just sign it, make a little note. I always, I hate, I really hate doing thank you cards. I get to them, and it's like, can I, like what Hallmark wrote was pretty good. Can I just sign my name to that? And that's all you have to do. Like you just, just write your name. These are going to, we're going to send care packages to the missionaries and we're just going to put these cards in there. If you are a person of words and would like to write a letter, please feel free to write a letter and give it to me and I'll put it in the care package. And so it's just a way that we can encourage them uh, during this time of year. It's nice for the shipping. A lot of our missionaries are on furlough right now. So we actually have just local shipping costs um, to kind of bless them. So today we are in Luke chapter 13, verse 10. I'm going to pray and we'll dive in. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. I thank you uh, for the gospel of Luke. Um, Father, as we work our way through this text, um, we ask that your spirit would illuminate its meaning, that we would understand it in context, that we would understand what happened um, as Jesus uh, went through these events. And Father, we pray that your spirit would help us to understand how this text fits into our life. We pray, Lord, that you would um, open our hearts, which have such a propensity to get hard in hearing your voice. And so, Lord, we each ask you that you would speak to us. Um, Father, I pray that you would help me as I work my way through this text. Um, may the things of you stick and the things that don't matter and I miss, Lord, may you just help them to, to, to fade from our memories. Um, Lord, we do love you, we praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Luke chapter 13, verse 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he was saying this, all of his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over the glorious things being done by him. So he was saying, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. 
And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. And Father, we come before you and we ask for your help as we study this portion of the Bible. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've kind of transitioned the last, I don't know, six, seven weeks. We've been kind of stuck on this story of where Jesus comes out from the Pharisee's house. They'd invited him over for lunch. As he walks out, he basically confronts their hypocrisy, their religion, the, how they've missed the mark. He highly offends them. He steps out. We're told that they begin their quest to have him condemned. And as he steps out, thousands upon thousands of people had had come to see Jesus. He then began talking to his disciples in the crowd to warn them of the things to come and how to guard their hearts. And it took a while to get through that. And now today we come to this new sort of section and it's caused me to kind of, to, to kind of re-ask the question, how does this story fit into the text? See, the gospels are so compact and there's so many things of Jesus's teaching that we can get kind of lost in the, the minutia, the, the tiny picture and lose sight of the bigger picture. And so I'm going through this this week and I'm asking myself, what's the deal with this story? Is this just another story of Jesus healing yet another person kind of in the New Testament? We, 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 we tend to kind of blur these things in our mind. Oh, yeah, Jesus just healed another person. No big deal. Moving on. What's the, how, how does it fit? And so I thought it would be good for us to go back to Luke chapter 1 and help us to get our bearings. Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke. He was not an eyewitness of the things that happened. He is one of the few, if not only, non-Jewish person that wrote um, the, in the New Testament. He was an excellent res- researcher, a historian, a physician by, by trade. And so he lets us know the purpose of his letter and, and what he's trying to accomplish. And everything that we study in the Gospel of Luke and Acts, we have to somehow ask the question, how does it fit into these first four verses? Because this is, in many ways, his sort of his governing statement, what he's trying to accomplish as he writes. And so we learn in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Luke, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. He said, listen, what happened? In all of human history, Jesus is coming to earth. Regardless if you believe that he is God or not, the position of this church is we obviously believe that he is God and Lord over all. But even if you don't believe that, there is no question that the man Jesus turned the world upside down. And historically speaking, he did amazing things in his short 33 years on this earth. And Luke says there's all kind of people who've documented research and are trying to write out events that happened during this time. There were eyewitnesses, people who saw. We know that Luke interviewed all kinds of people getting firsthand eyewitness testimony of what Jesus said and did. He continues in verse 3. He said, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. See, Luke was not Jewish. He was not a Christian. He didn't know Jesus. 
He started seeing the evidence, the things, and so he started investigating everything as a skeptic, interviewing people. Tradition holds that he interviewed Mary, Jesus' mother, kind of asking her the stories, all sorts of people, and he, he investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. So he's trying to write everything out in consecutive order. Basically, Luke and Acts, it's one book that's kind of broken into two volumes, And then we get to verse 4, the purpose of his writing. He says, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you've been taught. And so this story that we pick up today is kind of following a line in Luke that we first, uh, maybe not first, but but where we saw in Luke chapter 4, as we're working our way back, stop in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is now 30 years old. We'd seen him kind of grow. We've seen the prophecy of the things fulfilled. He's beginning to start his public ministry in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He'd gone to his hometown of Nazareth. He was asked to come to the synagogue to teach. They were told the text that they were to teach on. They didn't just play Bible roulette and choose. They went chronologically through. They They systematically went through, maybe not chronologically, but there was an order to the text that they covered. And so in Luke chapter 4, verse 16... We pick up our story and he says, and he, that's Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. The Sabbath is a key picture, like point in our text. The Sabbath comes up in in Luke chapter 13, five times in our short few verses. Jesus, we see that it was his custom that he went to the synagogue on Saturdays on the Sabbath to worship God on a regular basis. I think that is a very important lesson for us who call call ourselves Christians to to make a note from. Like, I don't come to church because I'm a pastor. I come to church faithfully because I'm a Christian. When I go on vacation, I go to church, even if I find myself in a place where I don't speak the language. If anybody had a good excuse for not going to church, it was Jesus. He's God. He knows everything. He wrote the Bible. He was a pretty good guy. Sinless. Like, as long as the place of worship is filled with people, there's going to be all sorts of problems that are worth not going to. But Jesus still went. He made a custom of going on Saturday to go to worship. And so he is, in verse 16, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. It's a tiny little space. I don't know, maybe... 30 people could fit in the room. It would be U-shaped with sort of stadium seating, if you could have that with 30 people, but it was, it was layered. And then in the front, there would be seats for like important people. And Jesus there stood up to read. Verse 17, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the book and found the place where it was written. So everybody would be there. It would be a big deal. He's standing The person that had access to the scrolls would go back to the back room, would bring the scroll, not a book. Not everybody had the Bible. They would hand the scroll to the person who was reading this. In this case, it was Jesus. He would unroll it to the place where he is, where he's supposed to be reading from. And then when he got there, he read this from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. So he unrolls it. 
He he hands it back to the person. Everybody would watch the scrolls as it went out. It's just like what it says here. And he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And so then he had a seat and he sat. He read and he sat. This seems kind of strange to us because I teach from city, standing. But even in our culture, if you're in any sort of hired academia, if you're in a doctoral program and you are doing a thesis or a dissertation, you have somebody that's your boss that's in charge of your work and that person's called your chair. It's a place of authority. And so he sits down and he's going to begin to expound upon this text. Everybody's looking at him. It's silent. Verse 21, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is like, whoa, 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 whoa. What was just read here? He starts, he just read about the Messiah coming, that the Messiah is going to come to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim the release of captives, recovery of sight to blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So right here, as he begins his ministry, he says, I am the Messiah. This has been fulfilled in your presence. This is powerful. And they were furious. They ran him out of town, literally. And this begins the line that we follow through Luke because Luke is very clearly showing that Jesus is indeed Lord, that he is God. Don't let people tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. He absolutely claimed to be the Messiah. It's why he was put to his death. And so as we follow this thread through Luke, Luke is building from this that he announced that the day, that the day of the Lord has come, that he's there. And so here we come to the synagogue story in Luke chapter 13. Here he is on a Saturday again going to worship. Going to worship in a place where we've already read that those that are, that are ruling and reigning over the synagogue are trying to kill Jesus. Yet he still goes. And in verse 10 we read that he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Sabbath is the key, like one of the key things in this text. The Sabbath, we don't, we kind of worship on a Sunday. And this, when you start talking about the Sabbath in, in Christian Jewish circles, maybe not here because we all come on Sunday, but the Sabbath becomes a, a point of very heated contention. And when I start looking at the Old Testament and, and reflecting on the Sabbath, the main purpose of the Sabbath that I see that God gave it was that man would take a day to rest, that we would press pause on life, that we would stop doing what we are do for work, that we would focus on family and worshiping of the Lord, that we would take time to be with him. Now, the Jewish people had taken the laws that are found there, and they had made rules about the rules and made rules about the rules, so that the Sabbath had become so constraining that there were only certain things you could do on the Sabbath. Jesus has already earlier in a few chapters, remember they were picking grain from the field as they were walking and they, the guys jumped out of the bushes and said, hey, you can't do that. You're, you're harvesting the grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. That's Gunner's paraphrase. And so, so here on the Sabbath, like if you go to Israel today, like one of the things is don't make a fire on the Sabbath because that constitutes work. If, you're, if you make a fire, you're, you're cooking and you're slaving away, you're doing stuff. So where to enter in? If you go to Israel, 
you'll discover the Sabbath elevator. You'll only make the mistake of riding the Sabbath elevator once. The Sabbath elevator, because if you press the button, that an electrical charge happens to call the elevator there. That's making a fire. That's not allowed. And so the Sabbath elevator, they'll be, you know, in a building, there's four elevators. One will be the Sabbath elevator. You walk up unknowingly, you just press the button and you're, bing, the door opens up. You go into the elevator. You're like, huh, all the lights are already red. Like some kid went up there, you know, and just like pressed all the buttons. And then you go up, it stops at every floor, just systematically up and down all the way. So they program the elevator so that you don't have to press a button and make a fire. It's already been programmed for you to do. Somehow I couldn't figure it out, but if you could set your whole hotel room so that the TV would pop on at a certain time and pop off on a certain time and the lights would go on at a certain time. So everything was on a timer so you don't have to make a fire. And I don't know what to say about this, but in observing Sabbath... (laughs) And observing the people that get very argumentative over the Sabbath, what I see is that God has given the Sabbath so that man could rest. And in turn, man has taken the Sabbath and created it to be something that's worshipped. That the Sabbath itself is to be venerated and to be respected. And Jesus is, is fighting this in this story. And in verse 11, we see there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. There's some medical term for this. I didn't even write it down because there's no way I'm going to be able to quote it to you. But essentially when this spine, when all the vertebrae in the spine get fused together, so the spine is in one piece. I've met people that have suffered with this, but literally the pe- they, they're hunched over like this. They can't look up at you because they're just bent over like this. They walk around. They virtually become unnoticed by anybody. And not even people who are trying to be mean to them or like children who don't understand certain things that tend to be a little harsh. If you love somebody like this, it's it's difficult because if you want to look in their eye and have a conversation, you literally have to get down on your knees to look at them in the eye. And this woman had it for a long time. We read over stuff like this and it just, oh, 18 years. Like it could have been 18 minutes, 18 seconds, but 18 years. See, today's a big anniversary for me. I was talking to a kid yesterday who wants to go be a SEAL and it done. I'm like, oh, well, no way. November 27th. See, today's my 17th anniversary of the first day of my hell week. And that seems like an eternity ago. I was in hell week from November 27th to December 2nd, 17 years ago. That's, I mean, it's a long time. Like, I don't even remember all the details from here, but it seems like so much has happened in my life. Is there anybody that's actually 18 years in here? I know Ben's very close. You're actually 18. His whole life. Don, do you remember the day he was born? It was a long time ago, probably, right? Lots happened. (laughs) Seems like yesterday, but also forever. Like, 18 years is a long time. That's how long this woman walked around. And here she comes into the synagogue to worship God. She's not coming expecting a miracle. She's had this for 18 years. My guess is she'd given up on any sort of like hope long, long ago. My guess is that nobody even noticed her. Because when we're standing, we're standing erect and we're all looking at eye level. 
when you have somebody that's hunched over, they're now like three feet. And so they just kind of get lost in a shuffle. Nobody, just kind of ignore them, most people, because it gets a little awkward, because how do you treat somebody that has a handicap? Just like a person, because that's what they are. But in our humanity of not knowing how to deal with stuff, we tend to ignore them and just act like they're not there. And so this woman is in the shadows for all of these years, not noticed by anybody. In verse, 14, um, verse 12, when Jesus saw her, I just want to stop. That Jesus here notices this lady. Like this is the kind of God we love and serve. The, the nobodies, the nothings, the cast out, the bound. What he said in Luke chapter 4, that he came to release these people, to free them, to help them. He sees her. There's a couple sayings that I've heard in church circles that I really like. Like, first, is every time we go down to Mexico to do something, there's a saying that we tell people. People are the priority. See, in America, it's like the job is the priority for us. It's like, you got, who, who cares? Like, if we're going to build a playground, play, playground. Don't be socializing unless Rick's here because Rick's going to, like, say, don't worry about the job. We'll get done. In Mexico, hey, if there's people, interact with them. Don't worry about building the house. The house will get done. Even if we don't do it, it'll get done. People are the priority. There's another thing that I like to say. I think I heard it from Don, but I probably heard it from somewhere before that. The last time I heard it where it stuck is people, not programs. See, the church doesn't exist for programs. We exist for people. Like, just stop what you're doing right now. Look at every, look at the person next to you. Look at the people behind you. No, literally, look around. Look at the people. Smelly people, angry-looking people, happy-looking people, people that look like they didn't comb their hair because it's a 100-mile-an-hour wind out there. Like all the people you're looking at, that's why we exist for each of you. We don't exist for this building. We don't exist for a bunch of programs and stuff. Like we exist because of people, that God loves people. And we've been touched by God's love, and so we want to love on each other and help each other out. And this is what we see Jesus doing here. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, I don't, did he call her by name? She's in the back, all these people. Hey, you, hunched over one. He's God. He knows her name. Hey, you, can I get your attention? Did, did he just say me? Did, like, like Don five minutes ago, did, did Gunnar just say my name in front of everybody? Like, oh, was he talking to me or was he talking about something else? Like he just call, gets your attention. He called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed. Now freed, I have this highlighted in my Bible because this whole freedom, this it's not about her physical ailment. In some sense it is, but in another sense we're going to see that this is a spiritual something. And I don't, don't ask me to explain it because I don't understand. I was wrestling over enough stuff in this text. But she's freed. Sounds a whole lot like Luke chapter 4, that in that day this has been fulfilled, that he came to free these people. He says, woman, you are freed from your sickness. And I can only imagine her saying, oh, you, can you tell me how many doctors I've been to? Like there was a story earlier in Luke that he healed somebody and it said that, you know, the doctors only made it worse. I forget the exact story, but it's, he says, woman, you're freed from your sickness. And he laid hands on her and immediately she was made erect again. Can you, 18 years. Some of us in this room don't even, can't, we don't have an 18 years ago in our lives. But for those of us that do have 18 years, can you imagine you're walking 18 years like this and all of a sudden you can do this? And it says immediately, and remember Luke, the guy who is writing this, is a physician. 
He is a medical doctor. Immediately she began glorifying God. And I don't believe that she began to glorify God when she stood up and did this. I believe she was glorifying God when she was doing this. She didn't come to church to be healed she, or the synagogue to be healed. She was there worshiping God because that's what she did. She loved God. And Jesus caught her attention. She wasn't coming to Jesus or coming to the synagogue to use God for something else. She was coming to worship God because God is God and she is not. And regardless of whatever her ailment was, she didn't, like, didn't care. And I love my father-in-law's message on Sunday night. In one respect, in another respect, I didn't like it. Because of what it said. He said, listen, what's the one thing that's driving you the most crazy in your life right now? The one thing that's most irritating you? Well, thank God for that. Thank God for that because God is doing something through that thing that is driving you absolutely nuts. So I like that message on one sense. And on the other sense, I really don't like that. Because who in here likes not liking stuff? Who here likes being irritated? Who here likes having pain? Not a whole lot of hands just went up, just if you weren't looking around, you know. Like, nobody. And so here this lady is freed. She's glorifying God. And this is an amazing thing. The people who are there are witnessing the Messiah do these, this incredible thing in this woman's life. Verse 15. Oh, wait a minute. Verse 14. But the synagogue official... So there's a synagogue official. He was the guy who was in charge, who likely invited Jesus there. I don't know the deal. Maybe he invited him there to, to set him up because we know that they're making a case against Jesus. They want to have him arrested. <clears throat> Maybe he's in the back saying, okay, we're going to invite Jesus over. We're just, I'll, keep my, I'll keep a little mental log of what's going on, and then we'll have him arrested. Jesus does this. Heals this lady. He doesn't really say much to her. Like he just says, you know, you're going to be freed from your sickness. He lays hands on her. She stands up. She's glorifying God. Well, this guy we see is indignant. That means angry. He is furious. And why is he furious? Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. It wasn't that Jesus healed her. It wasn't that that he kind of took glory away from himself. That Jesus had the audacity to heal this lady on the Sabbath. And began saying to the crowd, notice he doesn't, he doesn't talk to Jesus directly. He starts talking to everybody else. That's kind of like the cowardly, the, the more easy way. He doesn't say, hey, Jesus, can we talk once everybody's gone? Can, I, can you go back to my office? Can we have a discussion? Like, you did this on a Saturday, and it's kind of, you know, like, I have some convictions about this. But he, instead of talking to Jesus, he looks at everybody, and he begins talking to the crowd. There are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed, not on the Sabbath day. Is this just, is it hilarious, or is it me? I, like, this lady, 18 years it would have been much better if you could just come on Sunday and we would have had the healing on Sunday, not on a Saturday. Like there's six days in a week and you come on a Saturday. It's like this lady's been coming for who knows. Well, I mean, it doesn't say how long she's been coming, but I'm guessing she's a pretty consistent person coming to the synagogue. The Messiah is in his presence and heals. And this guy's like, there are seven days in the week, only one set apart. And you have to come heal on that one day. Like, are you kidding me? 
But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites. So Jesus confronts him and the crowd of those that sided with him. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? So he begins saying, guys, on a Saturday, you're, you're saying this is work. You're acting like I'm a doctor. I came in here and I, I started practicing medicine in your midst. But all of you, when you leave here, you have donkeys and horses and cattle. They're tied up. They've been tied up. It's time to water them. And even on a Saturday, you will untie them and walk them to the water. You'll care for them. You'll do work. And then he looks at this woman. He starts reasoning from like the lesser of creation. That there is more value in human life than animal life. But he starts with animal life saying, even with animal life, you would do this. And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? He said, you'll go water your animals and you'll release them. Should not this woman who's been crippled for all this time be released also? And this whole release of the bond, like the whole purpose of the Sabbath, like the whole purpose was to give man rest. And ultimately what Jesus did is he gave her rest. Like I don't, I've never had this sort of injury, but when you have like an, a chronic injury, like people I know that have chronic pain, like they can't ever, like even when they're sleeping or supposed to be sleeping, they can't get rest because the pain is so great. And I don't think it's a huge speculation to think that this lady has been in huge pain for 18 years. But religion loses sight of people. They care about the rules and the stuff we've created. That, and it's kind of funny in this story that here this woman that's bent over, God straightens her out. And as soon as she straightens out, the religious guy gets bent out of shape. There's sort of humor here. Like you guys, as soon as she strains out and is good with God, worshiping God, all the, the proper religious guy, he's totally like having a conniption fit, bent over, angry. And Jesus gave her rest. I want you to turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 9. <clears throat> the Sabbath is a curious thing. I obviously do church on Sundays because you're all here. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 9. And there's those that want to worship on Sabbath. I, I kind of, it's one of these open hand. If somebody wants to go to church on a sun, Saturday, I don't really care. I, I, it's great just be in church. That's wonderful. For me, like the whole Sabbath, like even if Sunday's your Sabbath, I, you know, like I'm, this is like my, this is my Friday this is like my whole week builds to Sunday. And so, I, and so like even on a Sunday, well, I can't really do the Sabbath thing on a Sunday. To be honest, Sunday afternoon, I can do a whole lot of sleeping and resting. But this is what my understanding of the Sabbath for Christians is in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. It says, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the one who has entered his rest. See that his capital, that's Jesus, has entered Jesus' rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Like this is one of the third warning in Hebrews. 
And so as Christians, I absolutely do believe, like, the concept of a Sabbath. Like, there's seven days, take a day off. Like, this is one of my greatest sins. I'm a total just type A personality, and I go, 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 go. And I, I, I fail a lot. I, um, but I try to take a day just to kind of do nothing, and I, a lot of times I kind of fail. So once a month, we drive up. Like, this is our Sunday where we drive up to Anna's grandpa's house. He's got a 44-acre ranch with no, no cell phone service, no internet, although there's a little Wi-Fi hotspot that I was able to tap onto down by the barn. <laughs> I cheat a little bit, you know, <laughs> just to delete emails from my inbox. But so I, like, force myself to take a weekend once a month just to kind of decompress, to, like, try to take the Sabbath. But here in Hebrews, it says that in Christ, that's where our rest is. Like, even if you, like, there's some circumstances, like people in the military. Like, when I was a Christian and in the military, I didn't necessarily have the luxury of worshiping once a week. I could have months where I was out doing stuff. But my rest came in Christ. And that's where my rest is. And Jesus gave this lady her rest. And he says, why shouldn't I release her? You would do it for an animal. And yet this lady, a child of God. And here's another picture why we value human life. Like in some cultures, this lady bent over. We'd say, oh, she's, she's worthless. Why don't we just euthanize her? Like, why do we care about protecting the unborn? You can go to approach, like I've never actually done this, but I can only imagine at a, at a, at a going to a pro-choice rally and bringing like a puppy that's pregnant and then executing the litter and the mothers. Do you, can you imagine the outrage that would happen at a pro-choice rally if you euthanized you know, a litter of puppies that was in a pregnant like dogs? Like they would be outrageous. But we're like the pro, pro-life would say, well, we want to protect the unborn child in the womb, and yet you guys are okay with it being executed. We've got things backwards. That here, this lady that's crippled over, God refers to her, Jesus refers to her as a daughter of Abraham, that this, she's a child of God. And you're more concerned about your religious rules of your do's and don'ts and what you're allowed to do on a Saturday, that you've lost sight that God loves people. And he cares about people. That it, we exist for the people that are here next to you. We exist for the people that are out there that don't know Christ. We want them to come to know Christ. And so verse 17, and he said this, and his opponents were being humiliated. See, it doesn't say that they're angry. They're humiliated because you're going to lose if you try to argue with God. Like you just... Like, there, there are religious people that will argue against what God has revealed. I've met people like this, in this like, from the SEAL teams. I say, oh, I'm a SEAL. I'll get people that have no idea about the SEAL teams that will tell me about all the kind of stuff that we have to do, like kill puppies and swim 10 miles out at sea blindfolded. And one guy said, that, does, that just doesn't happen. I don't know where you saw that. It wasn't on the Discovery Channel. You're making this up. He's like, no, 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 I got a buddy. It's legitimate. I'm like, no, I was a SEAL for 12 years. I was an instructor. We don't do that. He's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and so these people are like, this would, like, Jesus is God. Jesus, like, he wrote all of this, not just the, the words in red. Like, Jesus, this is God's word, all of it. And here are the people trying to, to tell Jesus what these words say. Jesus says, no, you got it all wrong. I'm the author of this 
this book you have. And so they're humiliated. And the other half of the people are rejoicing because they recognize who Jesus is in their midst. And I love this polarization that Jesus strikes. Even this day, you can go, you can pray. You could end a prayer, end it in Buddha's name or end it in Muhammad's name, end it in anybody's name, no big deal. But you say Jesus, and there's going to be this instant divide in a war. Like, what's so big about Jesus' name? In our pluralistic culture, like if we're so liberal and it's okay, like whatever's right for you, then why is it not okay for me to end in Jesus's name? Well, it's okay with everything but that. Jesus causes division because he is God. And so from this, see verse 18 through 21, like this is, this is one of those where if you go to the commentators, you're going to end up more confused than you began with. There is absolutely no agreement on these next three verses. I have some ideas that I'm going to share with you, but I don't. <laughs> I say them loosely. See, the problem with some when parables get introduced, it's really helpful when Jesus elsewhere kind of explains them. Because if he explains them, then you know what they say. But if he doesn't explain them, we're kind of less left to kind of speculate a little bit, and speculation is can be dangerous. None of the speculations here do I think really, some I think cause trouble. But, but so he says, so, so he was saying, some translations say, therefore, in the Greek, it's very clear that this next verse is directly tied to the above statement. So what he's about to say connects to the beforehand. So because of all the other stuff, he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? And in verse 20, he answers this question. He asks this question again. Verse 20, it says, And he again said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? He gives two illustrations, the mustard seed and leaven. That's why I have this picture up here. This is bread. It's kind of, it's dough. It's rising. Apparently, it's leaven or yeast that does that. I don't know. I take, I take everybody's word on that one. I haven't done enough baking to like to do test samples without leaven or not, but I've done enough research that I'm pretty sure they're accurate. So, so here, Jesus, like in the midst of this, in this little synagogue, this area where this ruler is upset, warring with Jesus and his authority, he says, well, now, how shall I care? How shall I compare the kingdom of God? This is interesting. This is something that I haven't quite been there ever yet. But as I go through Luke, as this, this, this concept, this teaching on the kingdom of God is going to continue growing all the, I mean, all the way through to the end. And so the one thing that I see, like in Jesus speaks, I can say, like, I think pretty authoritatively, this place it, that Jesus is saying this is it's not there yet. Like we see that he starts speaking that it's coming, that it's coming, that it's coming. The other observation that I've made about the kingdom of God and Jesus' teachings is that whenever he teaches on it, it's different than here. <laughs> like this world that we know and we love and we really like just like we, we live for it. Like most of us don't want to die. Like we like hanging on. Like we know that the kingdom of God is different than this world. It's different. All the way through, it's different. In Philippians 3.20, we know that our citizenship is in heaven. If you've trusted in Christ... We're told that our citizenship is in heaven, that we're like ambassadors here on earth. 
We've never actually been to this kingdom where our citizenship is yet, but we value its values here. Like I really liked Mark Hamblin's, like when he kind of talked about the kingdom of God a few weeks ago. Like this idea that the king tells us in his word what his kingdom is like, and so we apply these principles to our life. Now, we see, okay, let me just read the first one. Verse 19, it says, It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air are nested in its branches. The second one, it is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in the three pecks of flour until it was leaven. So the first observation that commentator or one position that commentators will take that history and seeing this grew really rampant following world war one where it really kind of took off is that the kingdom of god is like this tiny little mustard seed that grew and grew and grew to where it you know became like a tree some say upwards of eight feet tall where birds could actually set in it like leaven that you put in dough and the dough begins to to kind of grow and grow and grow and grow and so they've said, okay, the kingdom of God is like, like that, that it's, it started slow. Jesus came, he had his 12 disciples, and then Christianity is slowly spreading and spreading and spreading. And one day, the whole world will become Christian. That's the one view. The more I study it, the less I'm convinced on that, but I, I could be wrong. Like I'm ve- like, but I, I'm not sure. The other view is that these are bad that these are bad examples of the kingdom. Like, the, like if that probably came out a little bit off. But last week I talked about my apricot tree that doesn't produce apricots, so I don't even know why I call it an apricot tree. It's a tree that has leaves on it. Everybody tells me to be patient, that one day the fruit will come. I'll believe it when I see it. But I'm, I'm going to talk about my prized nectarine tree. I love my nectarine tree. That thing spits out so much fruit. At VBS this year, one of our neighbors came and dropped off their, our, their kids, and I never really met them, and they're like, she's, they, the mom was like, man, when I drive by your house, I stop and I tell my husband to look at your nectarine tree. And I'm like, yeah, it's awesome. It, it's so good. I didn't offer her any, but I because <laughs> I really like them. I really should have. <clears throat> and so... This, so what I've noticed here in this mustard seed is that this is a man who took it and planted it in his own garden. It's not, I started thinking, okay, like this is like mustard seed. We have mustard plants in our garden. When there's like mustard grow, it's bad here. It's a weed. And no matter what you do, I don't care how much Roundup you use. I don't care if you pull them, you weed whack. It's like cancer. It will not go away. Like it just won't. Like the, it's, and, and it's invasive. And so that's kind of the, the one, a kind of like possibly. But then it says that this guy planted it. And anything that's planted that produces something, birds are bad when it comes to your fruit on your tree. And so some, like J. Vernon McGee's a guy who says that this, the birds in this tree represents, like here this mustard seed, it started small, it grew, it's now producing, and now these birds are coming in and they're stealing the seeds and eating the seeds and plucking away and destroying it. Okay, that would kind of tie into like, here's this synagogue leader that's supposed to be like representing God's kingdom. But because sinful man's involved, 
it's being destroyed. I don't, I don't, I don't know. When you come into yeast, there are commentators that will say in other places in the Bible, anytime yeast is mentioned, it's bad. It is only used bad in the scripture. But we, we just saw this, the, um, the yeast of the, the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But then those same commentators that will say that when they get to this one, they say, oh, yeast is good. It's like this expansion. Which it may, I don't know, it could, it could be. But here he's saying that a little bit of yeast in this, like the other thought is that here, like, like the synagogue ruler is yeast. Like this is God's synagogue. It's his temple. He's doing this thing. Yet these religious leaders have sprouted up and they're contaminating the work that God started. It could be, I don't know. The other thing that I kind of like that I think works, and maybe all of these work together, you know what I mean? Like sometimes God leaves sort of vagueness for these truths to be, like here's yeast. Or this is bread, actually. (laughs) I've been swirling over this two things all week. (laughs) That's bread, it's rising. We know that there's yeast in there. But I can't show you the yeast. But you guys all know that there's yeast in there because it's rising. The other thing is with the mustard seed and when you plant something, or I see the little mustard seed weed go up in my yard, and there's a saying that watching grass grow, you know, it just doesn't work. But if you go away for two weeks, you definitely, like, notice growth. Like, there's evidence of, there's evidence that something's happening, but you can't see it if you're watching for it. But you know that it's working. And so in some respects, like God's kingdom is all amongst us. Like I don't, I, I, I don't think that the earth is going to become God's kingdom. I think he's going to come here to reign and rule. But the kingdom, I think, is somewhere else that's uncontaminated. But there's evidence of the kingdom working here. One of the things that stood out to me in Israel last year when I went there, I was sort of dreading. I was given a trip to Israel. It was a super huge blessing. I sort of dreaded going there. Because the last time I was in that part of the world, like where I've never, I've, I, up to last year, I've never been to the Middle East if it wasn't for work. And I guess that's still true to this day because I was working there last year. But I was doing a different type of work before. The SEAL pastor, they're slightly similar but different, you know. And so I was kind of going, oh, man, like going to the Middle East, it's going to be difficult for me. I was really expecting to like, okay, I'm going to really have to like hang with the older ladies and just kind of like get lost in the tourism thing and, and, and not kind of look what's going around. But I get to Israel and I was shocked. Israel reminded me of Europe and I'm going around going, what in the world? Why this? I, I feel like I'm walking the streets of Spain. Anybody here been to Israel? Can I get it? That's like that. I mean, it's kind of like reminds you of Europe a little bit. And then I start, like, so it really is bugging me. Like, why does it seem like Europe? Like, if you go to the Palestinian areas, that's very Middle Eastern. That's where I'd have to go for my shawarmas, because I love shawarmas. That's a whole other issue, though. But you, then it started dawning on me, well, in the 40s, when Europe, basically when Israel was established again, where did all of the Israelis come from? They came from Europe. So now today, a lot, very few of the Israelis have been to Europe but there's evidence of like Europe there. And that's because they're just, they're from Europe. And so while the kingdom of God is not here, as 
people come to Christ and surrender their lives to Christ, as we start living our lives according to biblical principles, there's a whole lot of evidence of the kingdom of God, or there should be in our lives. And because we cut against the world. And we're going to end with communion today. So I hope that makes sense because it's, it's always dangerous when you have like, like there's not a whole lot of clarity. The danger of going through the Bible, like I'm wrestling through this. I'll have an aha moment like on Wednesday and go, oh, it all came together. Well, it hasn't really come together. Like it's just, there's these three sort of possibilities. But Jesus is basically, he's confronting them saying, you guys aren't doing it correctly down here. And if you go over to Galatians chapter five, we looked at the fruit of the spirit last week. And in this week's story leading up to the fruit of the spirit, there's some points that apply with this text and going into taking the Lord's Supper. So in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, the whole book of Galatians, some have referred to Galatians as like being a mini Romans. This is Paul's, what I think is one of his angrier letters. He, um, he basically comes out blazing. And what had happened is, He'd gone to this region. He'd shared Christ. People had become Christians. They'd surrendered their lives to Christ. They'd been freed from the bondage of religion and sin. And after Paul left, a group of Judaizers came through saying, well, if you really want to be right with God, you've got to start doing all of these rules. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to honor the Sabbath. You've got to do all of this stuff or you're not right with God. And grace had been encroached upon. And Paul was furious. He says, how, how could you fall back what you've been freed from? And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, we read, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. This yoke of slavery is talking about religion. Religion is thinking you have to do all of these things in order to be right with God. When God wants relationship and he'll change the things that you do and the way the things that you value will change. But the things that change, it's not because we're trying to earn favor with God. It, sometimes it seems like it's semantics, but it's huge. If you come to church and if you work all these things out in your life and the purpose that you're doing them is you're trying to get God to love you. That's a whole different ball game then you encounter God's love and his grace and that he paid for everything on the cross and you've come to see how much he loves you. And then out of this love that God has for you, you begin changing the way you love. That's, it, that's two totally different things. And that's the slavery of falling into this religious trap. If you shoot down to verse 13, he goes on to say, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Continuing down to verse 16, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Which then leads into the fruit of the Spirit. Which then leads into chapter 6, which we looked at, the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. Where chapter 6, verse 1 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. See, this is that whole people are the priority. If you're walking with God and if God's love has affected you, you realize that all of these people in this building are people who God loves. And even when they make a mistake, instead of coming and cracking down the, the ticket book of God's like, oh, you're doing this wrong. 
We go to that person in love to try to restore them, to help them get on track with God. I have to turn the page to end with the text kind of for communion. In verse 14, it says, Paul writes, But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. See, when we start talking about Paul and boasting, see, I don't have a whole lot to boast in as far as like religious things. Like there's plenty of stuff I can boast in. You know, like I got plenty of like in my flesh. But when it came to like walking with God, if we go to Philippians, we see that Paul, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to zeal, you know, he obeyed the law fully. He was a Pharisee. He said, according to the law, he was blameless. There was a point in Paul's life that all of these silly little laws that man had made, Paul said, I kept them totally. He said, according to zeal, I killed those who profess Christ. But he says, all of these things are rubbish, dung to me. All of these things are rubbish. And he says, the only thing I want to boast in is the cross of our Lord Christ. And the cross has become a piece of jewelry to us. Like it's a good luck charm. The cross was a, a, a horrible, vile form of execution that the Romans came up with. Like it was not a piece of jewelry. It would be like us walking around with little electric chairs on our, around our neck. Little needles of the injection from the death, you know, the death penalty. Like this is. So why does Paul say this? Paul realizes that all of this religion, all of these do's and don'ts and all of this stuff that he was trying to do to earn his favor with God was was of no value. The only thing that was of value to him was that Christ humbled himself. He came to earth to live the perfect life. That the world's sin, my sin, your sin would be placed upon him on the cross so that we could be set free from the bondage of sin. This is a good thing. This is something that we boast in. And the thing is, it's a free gift. It doesn't mean that it was free. Like when I talk to salespeople, it always is like, it it cracks me up. Because if something doesn't cost a lot, like whether or not it's a good deal to me, it's cheap. But if you tell a salesman that this is cheap, they get all offensive. No, it's inexpensive. What's the difference? It's cheap. No, cheap means it's of little value. Inexpensive means that it has great value. And then it's reduced in price of what it costs you. There are events. Like Judy and I had big conversations with the ladies' tea. People are funny. You have a ladies' tea, you say it's free. Like three people show up. You say it costs $250. Everybody wants to come. It's like, what are you talking about? I don't get it. And so when we start talking about the cross being a free gift, don't think that it was some cheap, inexpensive gift. This is the creator and sustainer of the universe who became human. That he fulfilled the law completely. And that because of our iniquities and his love for us, he stood in as our substitute. See, a substitute teacher, when a teacher is sick or there's good skiing or there's good surf, they call in sick or maybe they're actually sick. And a substitute comes in and fills their place so that they could teach while they're gone. And so on the cross, because of our sin, we all deserve to be on that cross. But Jesus says, you know what? No, I'm going to stand in a place and I'm going to take the penalty 
because I love them. The God who judges us is the God who stands in our place in judgment so that we could be in relationship with him. And this is what communion is all about. The longer I'm a Christian, the easier it is for me to forget about my background and where I came from. It's so easy to forget about like what a troubled person I was and how much like bad things I did and how many like just like I did a lot of bad stuff. And it's all relative, you know, like I'm sure there's people who've done way like I know there's people who've done way worse by human standards than me. But the longer I'm a Christian, I've kind of cleaned myself up. I'm I'm respectable. I place my tattoos where you can't see them if I'm wearing a shirt. People forget my background. People don't know my background. And I can think, oh, look at me. I'm such a good citizen. I can do all good stuff. But that's foolishness. And, and taking communion, it's a reminder. See, this is just a stale little old cracker. And they come stale. Like, they come stale. <laughs> like... Like, there's no way to get these. And if you have allergies, there's the gluten-free ones. But I can't touch them because I've touched the wheat. And, I know it's, and so we, we take this cracker. It's just a cracker. But it's so much more than just a cracker. Because every time I take communion, and I really need to take communion every single day, like the reminder, this reminds me, oh, it's a broken cracker. It's not nicely cut. It's intentionally broken. It reminds me, oh, this reminds me that Jesus on the cross His body was broken, bloodied, torn apart, presented in a way that they couldn't even tell male or female. It's to remind me that he did that for me. And that any righteousness I have, it's not my own. It was imputed, a theological term that means my account was credited with his righteousness because he went through this. Because his account was accredited with my sinfulness. And so I take this cracker to remember what he did. And then we have the juice in a little plastic cup. And really, I think when Jesus gave, see, it was the Lord's Supper. It was a Passover meal. But I think he did it in a way that every time those that were with him actually ate and consumed and drank, they would be reminded of his words. That, man, every, like, what, like we all have to eat. We all have to drink. And when we see these, oh, he rose from the grave. See this juice, the new covenant. I have life. I'm no longer afraid of death. I have life in him through belief. And the other aspect of communion that's often neglected is, see, one day Jesus is coming back. One day this whole communion thing is going to be done with. Because when Jesus comes back and we're with him in his presence, there's no point in having a memorial service for him as often as we do it. He will be with us always. And we're told that we we know that this day is coming. Either Jesus is going to come back or you're going to die and you're going to stand with him. And this goes for all of our loved ones, our friends, our acquaintances. And so as we take communion, we're told in 1 Corinthians to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This is a reminder what this gift that we've received, don't hoard it, share. Go tell people about the good news of Jesus. And so I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Rick's going to last minute. You know, I I think I wrote him yesterday sometime and said, hey, can we sing this song for communion? Amazing grace. Just this great song. 
And uh, Judy sent me a link of somewhere about, you know, all of these, like, amazing, great, amazing, great. See, I wish I could go to a black church. Like, if I wasn't here, I'd be on a black church on Sundays. I love black, I love black Baptist churches. Like, I wish I had more of it in me. But we have no rhythm here. We can't clap. Like, it's, it's bad. And so, and I don't have any, like, but I love, like, going to Bayview Baptist. Like, if I, when I get the opportunity to go down there to Dr. Winter's, like, it's so much fun. But the history of Amazing Grace, this link was this video by some guy. I have no idea who he was. But there's a lot of the old spiritual songs from slavery were only done on the black notes of the keyboard, which, again, means nothing to me. There's one white spiritual song that's played on those same notes, and it's Amazing Grace. And this guy starts sharing that he, like if you go to the archives of Amazing Grace, it'll say that the words are written by John Newton, who was a slave trader. But the music, they don't know. It's unknown where it came from. And his premise is that as he was shipping slaves back and forth from the holes of the ship, he could hear the slaves humming this tune. Powerful. And so as this song is played, it's Amazing Grace. It's a remix by Chris Tomlin. It says, my chains are set free. My chains are gone. And the story that we look at as we come... Take your time to pray, to confess, ask God to show you your sin. Make peace with God. If you've never trusted in Christ, communion's not for you. But all you have to do to become a Christian is believe. And as we come up, as we take communion, I want us to meditate upon this woman that we've been set free. Have you been set free from the bondage of sin? Doesn't mean that we're sinless, but we're set free. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you, Lord, for this day. I thank you, Lord. Um, for this gift of salvation. I thank you, Lord, that you stepped out of heaven and became man, that you lived the perfect life for me. Father, I thank you that Christ loved me so much that he died for me. Father, I am sorry for the sin in my life, the sin that I struggle with, Father, I lack the ability um, to change on my own, and so we come to you for help. And Lord, ask us um, that you would help us to walk closer to you each day. Father, we long for the day that we can stand before you, Lord, and be fully restored, fully redeemed, and enter into sinless perfection. But until that day comes, Lord, we pray that you would burden us for our neighbors, our friends, our family that don't know you. Lord, help us to be a light that we would share Christ with those who don't know you. We love you, Lord. We praise you, and we ask this in Christ's name. And just a word of announcement. I'm going to get this, this tray ready. And so when you're ready to come forward, just come and get the elements and go back to your seat and take communion whenever you're ready.